This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Will Johnson. The show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. 92 is is not that long ago, really, when you talk about cold cases. You know, I told my my wife, she said, what do you want to know about your mom more than anything? And I said, I want to know what she thought I was going to be, what she hoped I would be, who she hoped I would be. So he just says he has kind of flashes of memories, like a chair flipped over, his mom under the sheet, the teddy bear. He does say a few statements about a big man, and uh, he, he motions that there was an argument in the home. And so that was all that the detectives had to go on. She was a great friend, a hardworking mother, and she deserves to be remembered the way she has been. I think her friends have made sure that happened. When Caleb McBreen was 12 or 13 years old, he says he ran away from military school and ended up at a middle school in Jacksonville, Florida, to try to find a friend he could stay with. And I was hoping to, you know, find somewhere to stay, and I got picked up by the resource officer, and he asked me my name, and I told him, and he began crying. Um, and it was it was probably the craziest moment of my whole entire life. He began crying, and he said, "Do you know who I am?" Caleb was confused and told the officer he didn't recognize him. Through tears, the officer told him that. They'd crossed paths before, about a decade earlier. He was the patrol officer who had responded to the call, and he'd actually broken through the window um, and came into that scene. And he told me that that day had changed his life forever. And I mean, he sat there and cried and prayed. And, and I've never seen a man just so torn up and, and, and unsure what to do. Caleb says that officer took him out to eat, talked to him, and most importantly, gave love to a kid that needed it. It was a chance encounter that Caleb McBreen says changed his life. He had a massive impact on me, but I told him, I said, man, I remember the teddy bear with the police jacket on it that said JSO, and and he started chuckling and crying, and he said, I gave you that. And I said, well, I had it, so I was like five. But it was was crazy to think that, you know, I, I remembered the teddy bear and the hug. I remembered him, he scooped me up like a football, you know, like, a certain Jaguars defensive tackle and, and hugged me and ran me in his police car. And f- from the story that I've heard, I don't, you know, have all those memories. He spent a ton of time with me over the next 24 hours and he didn't have to. He was just a patrol car guy, um, but he was just so worried about me and, and what I'd seen and what I'd been through. And then 10 years later to see me again and, and just want to love on me and tell me I mattered, it, it changed you know, my life uh, in a big way um, to hear that somebody still, you know, cared. This week marks 30 years since Caleb's mother, Renee McBreen, was murdered in her Florida home. Her case is still unsolved. I'm not out for justice. I I don't think you should go into this looking for justice. Um, I've told my wife and and my adopted parents, hey, you know, if this gets solved, it's not like tomorrow I'm going to wake up and feel a different way. Justice for me is, is... I guess more understanding, but more than anything, what I'm getting out of this is getting to know my mom. You know, the the mom I didn't get to know. My name is Katie Jeffries. I am an anchor here at First Coast News, and I also work on the cold case series Unsolved, which features cold cases from around the Jacksonville area as well as southeast Georgia. Katie Jeffries began looking into the unsolved murder of Renee McBreen earlier this year 
after she got a phone call. So I actually was in contact with one of Renee McBreen's good friends, her friend Diana, who said she was going to be coming back into town to hang up some flyers and wanted to see if I would feature um, Renee's story in my series, Unsolved. So we had been in contact and I went out and I spoke with her. I reached out to the sheriff's office and they were really interested in featuring this story as well since they too had spoken with Diana, went back and looked at the evidence and realized there was quite a bit of DNA evidence that could be retested by today's standards. And of course, that gave them a lot of hope in this case. In the late summer of 1992, Renee McBreen had been living with her young son in Jacksonville. She was a young mom, just 22 years old. She was a waitress at a local nightclub in 1992. Um, Her friends describe her as someone who was really bubbly, really funny, really well-liked by their friend group. Um, And she was a great mom. They say she was really devoted to Caleb. She loved being a mom. And she was around two months pregnant at the time when she was killed. My mom passed away two days after my third birthday. uh, So I wasn't able to have the memories most kids did. Um, I have spoken to family members over the years about things I remember and don't remember and and what things, you know, did stick and didn't stick. Caleb McBreen, now in his 30s, says he's known for having the best manners in the South. And he says it's not a coincidence. I got in touch with some people who knew my mom and I'd mentioned, you know, my manners. And they said, well, when you were two, before you could even speak, you would run ahead of everyone and open the door for them. And you would say, please and thank you before you would say mom and dad. Um, you know, she, she'd instilled that in me. And, and at 33, you know, that's, that's still stuck. So I spoke with Caleb as well. Um, he was three years old at the time when she was killed. And he had just turned three, actually. They had just celebrated his third birthday. Um, so he doesn't have a lot of memories of his mom. He has kind of little flashes of memories here and there. Unfortunately, you know, at that age, it's just hard to have any of those good deep memories. But he has learned a lot about his mom, of course, from her friends and from this investigation about who she was, how much she loved him. I fell down, scraped my knee like every little kid does. And I had remembered uh, the building, the State Farm building insurance. And I, I told my grandma and she was like, there's just no way you remember that. And I said, yeah, my mom picked me up and she carried me inside and she got me a Band-Aid and she babied me. And, and my grandma was like, you were two and a half, maybe. I don't, I don't know how that would stick. And I think it was one of those things that, you know, my mind held on to because, you know, it didn't have other memories to, to replace. On September 20th, 1992, Renee McBreen put together a full day of events to celebrate Caleb's third birthday. So they had had a party, of course, with family and friends. And then that evening, they went to the Dunkin' Donuts, which was just a couple blocks from their house, to continue celebrating, to hang out with family. And according to the newspaper reports, they left around 9.30 that evening to go home. The following morning, Caleb's father, Bill McBreen, called the house. He was still married to Renee, but the couple had been separated with Bill in the Navy and stationed in Colorado. Bill McBreen is the husband of Renee McBreen. Detective Ray Reeves works with the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office Cold Case Unit and spoke to Katie Jeffries about the case. And Bill is in the Navy. He's in Colorado at a school. Um, all of that's documented. We, we know that he's there. He calls uh, back home that, that Monday morning to check on his, his son, Caleb, who's in the home, and um, Renee, who's at home as well. He calls and 
Caleb answers and says that he can't wake up mommy, um, that mommy can't come to the phone, he can't wake her up. So of course, this is concerning to Bill, who calls the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office to go over and basically do a welfare check to see if everything's okay. The uh, patrol officer goes over to the house, knocks on the door, he can, um, he can, the, the front door is locked. He can hear uh, a little boy inside or a child inside. He looks through the windows. He sees Caleb, this little boy inside. Uh, the back door is locked as well. There's a window on the side of the house, and I'll show you some pictures from the from the scene that the officer raises up. <clears throat> it had been undisturbed, so it was unlocked, but it was closed. It was not locked, but there was still debris and dust and that things around. So it had not been used. We, we know that, and that was documented as well. The officer goes inside the, the home and finds Renee McBreen uh, deceased. Of course, he calls the fire and rescue, Jacksonville Fire and Rescue, to come, and they officially pronounce her deceased. Um, later ruled a homicide. Uh, there's blunt force trauma. <clears throat> She's laying on the floor in the living room near the couch. According to Detective Reeves, interviews began immediately, starting with three-year-old Caleb, who was brought to what's now known as the Florida Department of Children and Families. And they do a, a forensic interview with him, with, with specialists that are there for children to be able to talk and ask those questions that are not leading um, there's not a lot that they glean from that specifically. He does say a few statements about uh, big man, and uh, he, he motions that there was an argument in the home. And so that was all that the detectives had to go on. From there, investigators began tracking down others in Renee's life, anyone who may have seen her in the days leading up to her death. Renee was uh, a waitress, and so they started interviewing people at her place of employment, uh, her friends, people that she knew of, acquaintances that she knew of. Um, They took a lot of people uh, were interviewed in this case. In some cases, we don't have a lot of people to interview. In this, there was a large pool of people. They also interviewed the folks that were at at the birthday party the night before. According to Detective Reeves, the last person at the birthday party, a family member, left around 10.30 p.m., Bill McBreen called the police around 10.30 the next morning, leaving investigators with a 12-hour window during which the murder could have occurred. Investigators confirmed that Bill McBreen was out of state when he placed that call. Her husband and her had been separated for a little while, and uh, she had been seeing uh, someone else or, or other people. Um, he Again, he was out in Colorado for school for a while, um, but I was told that they were rekindling that relationship and that they were trying to work on things. And the plan was when he got back um, to attempt to give that a, a go again. Um, if I'm um, understanding what, what talking with Bill and, and family. Another man told investigators in 1992 that he was the father of Renee's unborn child. And he was told that by Renee. So Renee told him he was the father. He told investigators. And Detective Reeves says that man was also investigated and cleared. They cleared him, but a a sample of the fetus, of the DNA of the fetus was never taken. So they don't have any way by today's standards to corroborate who the parent was. Investigators also learned that a friend of Renee's had been staying with her Prior to the murder, there had been someone else, a, a friend of hers who was staying with her at the time, not of the incident, but she had weeks prior um, um, gone and visited someone, so she was not at home when this happened. There was, however, a neighbor who saw and heard something going on at Renee's home that night. They heard some commotion um, and, and may have seen a male at the house uh, that, uh, that evening. 
Could they provide any description? Um, nothing that was consistent. You know, what Caleb says is big man, and the witness says beard, uh, possibly a beard. Maybe one of the biggest clues as to who this man was, or at least what connection he might have had to Renee, was that there was no evidence of forced entry at the home. So one of the reasons they believe that she knew her attacker was because all the doors were locked and all the windows were undisturbed. The front door's locked, so we, she's inside, that door is locked, um, and somebody else that she we believe that she knew was let in let into the house or was it was in the house the back door no forced entry as well so again we don't we don't feel like this was an assault uh or a burglary i mean or anything like that or a robbery or someone where someone broke in so the window was lifted up so it, it was already down when the officer lifted it up to get in it just wasn't locked but it wasn't disturbed the front door was locked meaning that we believe that somebody was already in there because that was locked with a deadbolt the rear door door is just a, a button uh, from um, a button or, or a, just a latch that you turn from the inside and if you close the door on your way out it locks but there was no force entry to come in so whoever it was she knew and they were already inside and when they left our thoughts are our belief is because of the deadbolt in the front is they just turn that that knob and close the door behind them also at the scene Investigators found prints they believe could have been left by Renee's killer. They found a palm print at the scene as well. They run that through the databases that they have at the time. But back in the 90s, investigators couldn't find a match. And in time, the case went cold. And for Renee's family, life continued on without Renee and without answers. There was a tremendous amount of love that I had to miss out on um, with her being taken so early. So, and a lot of memories, you know, we, my family didn't get and I didn't get. Caleb McBreen's happy childhood with his mother was shattered and replaced with a far more difficult path. After my mom passed away, I went to my biological father and I moved out when I was nine years old. Um, I bounced around to multiple foster care homes, a military school. At times, Caleb says he was homeless in his childhood before eventually being adopted as a teenager by a loving couple. So growing up without her, you know, as as a young kid, I was very mad that someone took her from me. And I felt like every situation I was in was that man's fault, or, you know, the person that committed that murder. Now an adult with two children of his own, Caleb says he's no longer mad, just heartbroken. You know, my, my daughter got her first crush the other day and we talked about him and I picked on her. And, and it made me think, you know, what would my mama said when I came home and told her about Holly, you know, my first crush as a kid. And when my, you know, my son started T-ball and, and, you know, she didn't get to see me at T-ball. She didn't get to see me prom night. She didn't get to see me graduation. I think the hardest thing when you lose somebody at that age is I always wonder what advice she would give me today. I always wonder what she would, you know, I told my, my wife, she said, what do you want to know about your mom more than anything? And I said, I want to know what she thought I was going to be, what she hoped I would be, who she hoped I would be. Um, you know, we can always say, I hope I made my dad proud. I hope I made my mom proud. But if you don't know them to know the goals they had, or the hopes they had, there's, there's no way to know if, if you would have or wouldn't have. Renee McBreen's case sat cold for decades, but it was that call from Renee's close friend, Diana, that Katie Jeffries says led investigators to reopen the case. So truly the person that brought this back onto investigators' radar was Renee's close friend, Diana. The phone call that she made to investigators to kind of ask them about the case, where it stands, um, if they would be able to talk with her and Caleb about it, 
that really kind of got the wheels going because then Detective Reeves opened the case, looked at it, realized how much evidence there still is that can be retested by today's standards. And that got the wheels turning. And then she reached out to us um, to put this story back on the airwaves to see if new tips come in. So truly, it began with a phone call from one of Renee's friends that has really kind of greased the wheels here. Where you are technology-wise, it's as if we are submitting items for the first time, quite honestly, because we submitted items before at that standard, um, which was so... The 1992 standard? Exactly. And, and even again, in the early 2000s, there were some other items that we got negative results on. But where we are today is we're, we're light years uh, ahead of where we are, or they are, with, with their technology. And so being able to submit those items, it's as if we're doing it day one. And there were some items that we submitted that had not been tested yet. So we're, we're working through that. They can actually submit even more evidence now because they can use smaller samples. So things they couldn't submit in 1992, they can submit now. Um, you know, Detective Reeves was telling me there's quite a few pieces of evidence they've, they've never even been able to submit, um, but they can now. So it's almost like you're restarting the case over again from day one. And they're going to run the palm print, of course, through um, the federal and local databases. And who knows what, what that could come back as. Um, so he just saw in this case, there is a lot of potential where new technology can hopefully bring in new leads. We do have a plan for this isn't just a one-shot submit these items and that's all we have because we have several items that can be submitted. So I'm very hopeful in, in, in this case. As his mother's case has been reopened, Caleb McBreen says he's had a chance to get to know his mother better through talking with friends of hers who still, 30 years later, hang up posters around Jacksonville and remain dedicated to finding the person who killed their friend. I've heard she was tough. She spoke her mind. She didn't take any crap from anyone. She was Miss Homemaker with you, but she also managed to be the life of the party when you know I was at home with my godmother or my dad. Um, the way they've spoken about you know <clears throat> just our friendship. You know, I, I called her best friend. Uh, they met when they were seventeen, and I said, you know, what can you tell me about my mom? And she said, she is who taught me what a best friend was. She said, I'm, I'm fifty two now. I don't think I've ever had a friend like I had in your mom. And and to see this many people and this many, you know, of her girlfriends, you know, 30 years later, still saying, you know, that was my best friend. That was my best friend. That was my best friend. I'm, I'm 33 and I can genuinely tell you I've had two best friends in my whole entire life. My mother somehow had like 17. Um, and, and just the the love around her tells you, you know, how much love she gave. You know, you're you're not that loved if you're not giving it back. She was a great friend a hardworking mother, and she deserves to be remembered the way she has been. I think her friends have made sure that happened. So it's it's very touching to see how many people she affected, you know, 30 years later. Caleb even says speaking with cold case detectives as they work on his mother's case has helped him connect the dots on certain memories. I was very surprised to find out um, the things I remembered. You know, I I'd always believed that there was a sheet pulled over my mom after she had been, you know, murdered. And uh, I brought that up and said, hey, you know, I remember a sheep being pulled over. And they said, well, actually, the, um, you had woken up that morning um, and we believe went out there and put a pillow under her head and a blanket over, you know, trying to make her comfortable and, and okay um, and being so young, not realizing, you know, 
what exactly was going on. They believed, actually, just the way everything was, you know, kind of positioned was that maybe Caleb, as a three-year-old, he, of course, didn't really understand what had happened, that his mom had, had died. So he had a sheet that he put over her, put a pillow under her head, you know, thinking that she's sleeping because he's three years old. He doesn't understand. And so that memory he has of her under a white sheet, that's not something from the crime scene. That was something that they believe maybe he did as a, as a little kid. He also told me he had memories of a specific teddy bear with a little police jacket on. Um, and that was the teddy bear that officers gave him after they pulled him out of the house. They had him in the police car. Um, they gave him that little teddy bear to kind of console him. And so he just says he has kind of flashes of memories, like a chair flipped over, his mom under the sheet, the teddy bear. Um, and he says he is thankful, honestly, that he doesn't remember what happened because imagine the trauma of that. Before wrapping up their conversation, Katie Jeffries asked Kayla McBreen what his hope is for his mother's case now 30 years later. For him, I, I asked him if he wanted to see someone arrested and he said it wasn't even about that for him at this point. He just wants understanding of why she was killed. He wants to know you know, what happened? Why did this have to happen? Because it also spun his life into a tailspin where he eventually ended up in foster care, homeless. He really struggled because of this person taking away his mom, really the only person he had that loved him and cared about him. Caleb says there's a message he would want his mother's killer to know. I think I would want them to know um, the family's not out to, to see someone pay for a crime. At least I'm not. I'm not out to see someone pay for a crime that happened 30 years ago. I'm not here, you know, just begging for a conviction. I'm just so happy to see someone care about her. I'm so happy to see someone get the attention. And for me, I just want to know why, you know, my, my life was changed that day. You know, why was it that necessary? Um, why did it come to that? Why did, you know, I have to grow up the way I grew up based on, you know, someone's anger or what went on? The, the questions in my life have always surrounded that day on why did I have to experience this? Why did, you know, someone have to do that to her? I would just love to know, you know, what happened, why it happened. Um, we're doing a lot of research now trying to find that out. Um, if you have anything, you know, there's, there's no hard feelings. I'm not upset. Um, I, I hope that you don't have to live with that as long as you already have. Um, I can't imagine you know, hearing my story and, and not coming forward and not knowing how it affected my life and changed my, my life's trajectory. 92 is, is not that long ago, really, when you talk about cold cases. I realize numerically it, it probably is uh, for some of, the, some of the viewers and some of the listeners. But what, what we would like is this, for, for Renee's case to not be forgotten. She's a 22-year-old single mom um, well, living at home with, with, with her child by herself. And I, we want this to be back out again in front of the public's eye to remember Renee and maybe someone who worked with her who we didn't talk to then or, or maybe was reluctant and, and, and or they thought of things later or maybe even a year or two or five or ten years later, somebody said something. And so what our hopes is airing cases like these, getting those back out for the citizens to remember the area, the house, the, the, that this family, co-workers, and so that we can keep this fresh in people's eyes. And we would love to hear um, anything from, from people. And again, we've said this countless times, that perhaps there's something that somebody thinks, well, they already know that, or, or this really isn't that important. 
But the reality is, is it, it may be a key to unlocking the case. You know, Renee was known for the friend she was. She was known for the love she gave. And she was known for just always being the happiest person in the room. Um, I, I just, you know, I just want to know why. Um, and, and for anyone else who, who's been, you know, we always talk about the victim of the murder, but the families that are affected for years and years and years, they know that that, that why will forever haunt you and bother you. And, and it's just, it's impossible to answer without knowing who did this. So anyone who does have information and wants to come forward, please understand there's no judgment or hate, um, but it, it could do a family a lot of good to find out why they had to suffer the way they did um, and why they had to go through things they had to go through, especially for me, you know, the 15 years of childhood without a mom, I would love to know, you know, what, what made that happen. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson, along with Reed Redman. Reed, I wanted to ask you a few questions about this case in this episode. Do we know what the murder weapon was in this case? Did investigators ever figure that out? No. So as you know, what we heard earlier in the episode is that Renee McBreen's death was caused by blunt force trauma. But when Katie Jeffries asked Detective Reeves if they recovered the weapon, he said they didn't. So they know that she was hit numerous times with something, but they don't know what exactly it was that she was actually struck with. And it sounds like investigators think they might already have all the evidence that they need to solve this one. Exactly, or at least that's the hope. You know, what we hear from detectives surrounding a lot of cold cases like this is that they're waiting on more information or trying to track down one more piece of evidence, the final piece of the puzzle. But in this case, investigators are clearly approaching this as though they potentially have all of the puzzle pieces in front of them they just need to put that puzzle together by retesting the evidence using modern technology. It, it could be that palm print that might lead somewhere, or maybe something else from the crime scene had a tiny amount of DNA on it that wasn't usable in 1992, but would be enough to put together a full profile today and, and get a hit on now. I really got the sense listening to Katie Jeffrey's full interview with Detective Reeves that he does think that they have the answers. They're just hidden somewhere in the evidence. And Katie essentially told me that that was her read on the interview as well. She said she's interviewed this detective about a whole bunch of other cases and she could just tell with this one he's particularly hopeful. There's another part of his interview with Katie that we didn't include in the episode where he mentions that they're not just re-examining evidence. They are also planning to re-interview some of the people they've already spoken to. And he actually said that as they are resubmitting evidence, essentially he wouldn't be surprised if it's one of those people on their interview list that they eventually end up getting a hit or a match on. Reed, you know, we often talk about what happens after cases like this fade from the headlines, how it doesn't go away for the families of victims. In this episode, we heard from somebody who's been living with that pain for, for 30 years. Yeah, I was really moved by some of Caleb McBreen's comments that we heard. If you watch Katie Jeffrey's story that she did for TV at firstcoastnews.com, she included a photo that was printed in the Florida Times Union in 1992 of Caleb standing with his father shortly after the murder. And it's hard to imagine that the three-year-old boy in that photo is now a father himself. He's actually older than his mother was when she was killed. And as you mentioned, he's been living with all of these questions for three decades. And, and you know, if, if anybody has a right to be mad, it's him, which is why it is so striking to hear him talk about this case and the fact that he doesn't really seem to hold any resentment towards anyone at this point. He just wants 
answers. And hopefully this renewed investigative effort will get him those answers. And in the meantime, it seems clear that Caleb's priority is just making sure his mom is remembered not just as a murder victim, but for who she was when she was alive. He talked in his interview with Katie about how he's looked back at coverage of the case from the 90s. And he said he didn't really think it put his mom in a very positive light, being a working mother taking care of a child by herself. I can't speak to the specific coverage that he was referring to, but he says it shows how much society has changed, that today his mother would be put on a pedestal. Those were his words. And he wants to make sure that that people know who she was, a great friend, a loving, hardworking mother who was unfairly taken away from her family at such a young age. All right, Reed, thanks for bringing us the episode this week. And also thanks to Katie Jeffries at First Coast News in Jacksonville, Florida. And thanks for listening to True Crime Chronicles. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story. Thank you.